Welcome back class. Today we'll be talking about ethical dilemmas and group practice. I always start with informed consent, which is the concept of informing your patients very clearly as to the expectations of the service, whether it's a group for psychotherapy or a skills group. We want to be very clear as to the purpose of the group, what are the goals, what are the expectations that we have of our patients. We talk about the limits of confidentiality, meaning we inform our patients that we will uphold their confidentiality um, unless we have an authorization to release information, unless they disclose um, child abuse, elder dependent abuse, or that they are at risk of hurting themselves or others. Um, we also talk about confidentiality in terms of the privacy within a group context. While we have an expectation of confidentiality, certainly between group members and the facilitator, we can't guarantee confidentiality. And so that's really important for the group participants to understand um, is that while it is an expectation, it's not something that we can guarantee. And um, so that is a risk, uh, you know, that they need to be informed about. So we always talk about the risks and benefits of a treatment, whether it's a group treatment or an individual therapy that is a part of the informed consent. We also talk about privacy. Now, privacy is really important, and I usually share that no group member is required to answer a question or to participate. Um, they're not required to. There's an expectation that we hear their voice and that they contribute to the group, but if this is a particularly sensitive subject, each group participant can reserve the right to their privacy. And so that's very important. There's a distinction between confidentiality and privacy within a group format. Um, so we don't pressure group members to participate. Um, we can challenge and we can, you know, we can try to elicit discussion, but that is something that we need to be respectful of. Um, that they have the autonomy and right to self-determination in that way. And related to that, that of course we're providing dignity and respect to all of the group members. In addition, we want to make sure that we're not engaging in dual relationships with our patients or group members. We're not borrowing money. We're not um, hiring the patient to do a business for us. Um, we're not engaging in a business venture with the patient. Um, we're not engaging in a close personal friendship with the patient. Um, we're certainly not dating the patient. And um, as you know, sexual contact is prohibited. Um, we also want to talk about termination 
it's important to talk about termination at the onset of therapy um, and being very open, transparent, and clear about the timeline of the group process. Um, we also can discuss potential reasons for termination, um, which can include if the patient is not benefiting from treatment um, or the treatment doesn't seem to be clinically appropriate. Um, we also want to be very clear about our fees. I think I mentioned that. Um, in many organizations, the service is subsidized. It's free. Sometimes there's a low sliding scale fee. Um, sometimes it's private pay. So we just need to be really clear as to the payment agreement and have that be documented as a, a part of the consent. Um, if we're providing teletherapy, which often we are now through COVID, we want to be really clear about the limits of confidentiality and privacy through websites and through the um, video conferencing technology, um, which should be encrypted. Um, but if it's not, because you don't have access to that resource or your agency does not, the patient can sign um, a waiver, an authorization. However, it is best clinical practice to use encrypted um, software that can um, provide confidentiality. Um, we'd want to talk about limitations to electronic transmissions, um, fax machines, emails, things like that. Um, and aside from that, we would want to get their emergency contact information. If something were to occur, say they have a seizure or some sort of medical emergency um, that incapacitates them, who would we want to contact? In some settings, as a part of your clinical supervision, you would be recording either through video or audio. If that's the case, you definitely want to have them sign off on uh, their consent to record an observation, um, you know, which is a written informed consent for videotaping, audio recording, uh, or anything to that extent. And in addition, you want to be clear about any third-party financial um, dynamics, such as like insurance payments, um, you know, if the organization is um, being is charging the third party insurer, um, many times as a part of the informed consent, it's included that um, the mental health care provider will be in contact with the managed care organization, the insurance company, um, and will need to provide that information to them. And aside from that, we just want to make sure that we're documenting every session um, very well and that, you know, um, we're being objective and being very clear. As an individual practitioner, you want to make sure that you're aware of the difference between the scope of practice and the scope of competence. The scope of practice is defined by our profession, our discipline, 
social work. So what we can provide clinically um, must be within our scope of practice. So, you know, for example, we wouldn't be providing massage therapy or some sort of uh, medical procedure um, that would be outside of our scope of practice. When we talk about our scope of competence, what we're talking about is our education, our specialty, um, how much experience do we have, how much consultation have we received in a particular uh, specific niche of the practice. So for example, um, trauma therapy or um, therapy for um, alcohol use disorder or opioid dependency, something that's very specific, we would want to make sure that we're working within our scope of competence that is in line with specialized education, specialized training, specialized um, supervision, uh, you know, things like that. Now, groups can be complicated. Groups can get messy real quick. And sometimes as social workers, we can't always predict or control what the outcome might be. Now, these are essential skills of any social worker to develop in how to facilitate groups, how to manage groups, how to create groups. It's just going to make you a stronger social worker, regardless if it's what you want to do. It's a basic foundational skill that's necessary, in my view. And the best practice is, you know, just getting started. Um, now, many of you may be facilitating groups and have, um, you know, a lot of experience with this. Some of you maybe not. Maybe you're just beginning. And, um, you know, at some point in your process, um, there is going to be some sort of conflict that arises. And we don't always know when it will come or what it will be about. Um, sometimes it can be related to the content of the group. Um, it might be, you know, um, a political discussion that happens. Um, it might be a ideological discussion that happens. Um, and so, you know, what can happen, the way that it can be experienced within a group setting is that there's uh, like a violation that happens. Um, you know, it, it can be um, like, a, like a volatile experience. There can be disrespect or in some instances, group members can gang up on other group members. And so, you know, we need to be skilled and we need to know when to step in and when to allow the group to process through whatever harm um, was caused in order to repair uh, the rupture. Now, there's some very basic, um, you know, violations uh, that are clear cut, such as uh, confidentiality of group members. So I think in the textbook, the example that they use is that there was a, there was a party that 
um, you know, group members were invited to, and um, one of the group members met a friend of the other group member and said, oh, hey, um, you know, Bob mentioned you. And um, so the group member was taken aback because her confidentiality um, was not respected. So something like that, which could be a violation of confidentiality, is something that we would have provided an informed consent about and that we can't guarantee that that is going to be um, upheld. Um, at the same time, that group member will be a part of the group and it may cause a rupture, a challenge for the group members. And so we're going to have to spend some time um, allowing for the processing of that. Now, when we do that within a group context, you know, we have to understand what is the environmental context here, right? So now, if we're um, a clinician in a rural community where it's very common for group members to see each other outside uh, of the clinical context, well, we need to also understand that. Um, when these dilemmas arise, it's natural for the social worker to want to protect the individual, to comfort them, uh, to kind of fix the problem. And sometimes, you know, there, there is, there is the, the time where we step in, certainly, if there's violence happening or, um, you know, significant comments made that denigrate um, the individual. But for a lot of social workers, the skill involved is how to highlight the harm within the group context and allowing the group to sit with and struggle through to try to work toward a solution. So the skill being that it's not for the social worker to solve, but for the group members to consider the impact that the harm has had on the group and to come up with a solution. Um, and in the text, um, in the Brandler group work text in chapter three, I think it is, they, they have some really good examples of how they do that. Um, and so, you know, one thing is when the social worker brings to the group and asks the group for feedback, um, I wonder what people in this group feel about what's going on here, right? So using an open-ended question, putting it to the group, without solving the issue for them initially is an important skill to be aware of. Um, you know, we help explore and facilitate their exploration of what happened and lifting up different perspectives. Um, that's really important. Um, so we need to be aware of our motivations for stepping in. Um, and 
you know, did we experience a transference? Um, you know, what about that interaction, um, you know, did we want to solve for? Um, and so we solicit responses from the group members. We want to understand what are their feelings, what are their thoughts about what happened? Um, what was the rupture? What was the challenge? What was the problem that happened? Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so we help group members kind of think through, we help facilitate that. Um, and it can be a really important process for members to have. Um, it can be self-regulating. Um, there's an interpersonal dynamic that's happening. Um, they're utilizing communication skills. There's problem solving. And, um, so even though the worker has the authority uh, and, you know, leadership in facilitating, um, an experienced clinician, depending, of course, on how egregious the rupture and, and the problem is, uh, would allow the group members to kind of work through what happened. Um, in that way, it's somewhat empowering for the group members to take control and, um, you know, work through whatever harm um, was perpetrated. Now, many times that can be difficult. And that's what I mean by, you know, things can get messy real quick. And part of what is being tested are our values, um, you know, what's important to us, um, and our point of view, our perspective. Um, and within a group, you're going to have a multitude of perspectives, uh, ideologies, um, political, um, you know, uh, dynamics that occur um, explicitly. So again, depending on the topic, um, the agency, the service, the opinions being expressed, um, for example, um, different approaches to parenting, the example that is used in the text, there are a wide array of different parenting approaches and strategies. Um, corporal punishment is legal. And, you know, so there are going to be these different opinions, these different values. And when a conflict occurs, um, it would be too easy for the social worker to jump in to try to manage and to try to solve the problem. But by allowing group members to talk through and educate one another, um, the social worker has to really maintain a level of objectivity, which can be very difficult to do, particularly if, you know, the values that you hold are, um, you know, totally different from the ones that they're talking about. Um, now, there are certainly some instances where the social worker needs to jump in and um, to make sure that we can, um, to the best that we can, ensure safety, emotional safety for the group members. Um, you know, so if there is um, racist comments that are made or you know, derogatory uh, statements or comments, 
um, you know, then we need to provide a clear boundary to maintain the safe environment for group members to want to participate and to share. Um, that's different than shaming the perpetrator of the abuse or who caused harm. So we can have firm boundaries and very clear, uh, you know, parameters. Um, but we wouldn't want to solve the problem for the participants. Um, we would want to help them facilitate in a discussion um, and engage with communication skills. And that can be very difficult, for sure. Um, particularly, um, you know, I think a lot of clinicians that I've talked to, um, given how divisive the rhetoric has been in the United States over the last five years, um, there's a lot happening. There's been a lot of social change and it comes up quite frequently, um, not only in individual therapy, but in groups. Um, and depending on the part of the county and where you're providing the service, uh, there are all these different attributes or variables that can contribute to these topics coming up. It could be the population that you're working with, um, things like that.